Hey, what's up? Mr. Bill here. I just wanted to plug my dates real quick. So if I'm coming to your city, you can come and see me play a show. Uh, so here's all my November dates. 9th, Delhi, 15th, Melbourne, 23rd, Brisbane, 30th, Sydney. For December, I have the 12th, San Francisco, 13th, Nevada City, 14th, LA, 18th, Denver, 19th, Santa Fe, 21st, Columbus. And then in January, I'm playing in Philadelphia on the 11th. If you want to find out more about any of these shows, go to mrbillstunes.com forward slash tour. And if you don't come to my shows, I'll do a fucking piss on the carpet. Now, uh, enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. This is an edited podcast, meaning like yeah. uh, there's a dude called Robert Fumo who basically hit me up initially and he was like, hey, I want you to like do a podcast. And for a while I was like, I don't know, I don't really think I have the time or the energy to do it. Yeah. But he was like, I'll do all the editing. And I was like, all right, done. <laughs> Interesting. So does he like manage podcasts for other people? Or no, actually. Well, I think he did. So there used to be this company called Bass Gorilla. Okay. And they were, uh, I guess, sort of like a... They, they did some tutorials with some neuro producers like Scope and stuff like that and people who I was a fan of. And I think I did some tutorials for them at one point. Yeah. And then they had a podcast for a while and I think he managed that one. And I don't think they were distributing it properly though. So there's this company called Libsyn, which stands for Liberated Syndication, which mm. is where you want to basically put your podcast to distribute it in the same way that I guess like DistroKid is a distributor for music or whatever. Right. Um. And I don't think they were doing that. I think they were just putting it on like SoundCloud and YouTube and stuff like that. So with this one, we do it obviously through Libsyn. So it's on like Stitcher and Apple and all that shit as well. Cool. Yeah, I know TuneCore does them, uh, has a podcast yeah. platform now, I think. I should probably introduce the thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well. yeah. Welcome to episode nine of the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey. <clears throat> yeah, pretty new podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, you're Ben Jordan, the Flashbulb. I'm a big fan of your music. Oh, thank you, and, sir. Uh, been a big fan of your music since probably like 2000 and maybe 2006 or something like that i think i first listened to red extensions of me okay yeah i remember i remember over the years i had been i don't know if it was like your manager or your friend or, or something but over the years or i i like had heard of some guy in australia that wanted me to come to australia or something or wanted me to play a show mm. like do you got did was there like some festival or something that I was asked of? I, I'm trying to remember like just through my booking agent at the time and then it never worked out obviously, but yeah, I was never trying to book you there. I was not a promoter. Okay. Um, but it might've been a friend of mine or something like that. It would have yeah. made sense. I think, um, there's been a few IDME artists that have gone over there and done. Okay. Like Vatex and okay. uh, do you know that guy? No. Rob Klaus. No, I don't think so. Um, I might, mm. if, sorry, Rob, if, if, <laughs> if we like. I think Rob <laughs> listens to this podcast, but yeah. Um, yeah, he, he did pretty well over there. Um, Woolg did pretty well over there too. Okay. Um, Tipper does great over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of artists. I think like Australia is pretty accepting, honestly, of like weirder mm -hmm. styles of music. Sure. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I guess just like a lot of people are always name dropping you until I finally was, I, I'm not sure when I, listen to your music but well i i hit you up directly when i was uh studying at sae in sydney i think it might have been like two it might have even been like 2000 
Yeah, probably about 2007 or something like that. Okay. I, uh, we had some assignment there, which was like to just cover a song that you liked, but do it with all live instruments and make sure that like the whole thing was mixed down like on a mixing desk and like basically just like you have to use these tools to do right. a song. Okay. So I chose to do Undiscovered Colors. Oh, and, okay. And I think I sent it to you and your response was like a one sentence like, oh, you got the night notes. I think that's all you said. <laughs> Sorry, it, it's interesting. Well, not, now I suppose you're probably you're probably in that position too, where people message you a lot, and it's yeah. you always have to like balance that sort of like I I definitely I don't even read most of the things now, but um, when I do, I I always try and like taper uh, how much I allow myself to uh, respond, just because I, I realize that my job is to continue to make music and I, I I get so stoked and so honored when people are into things and I could just, but I want to know what they're up to. I want to know like what I was, you know, like, so uh, what do you do for a living? What's, uh, what's your dad like? You know, just things like that. But if I do that, I'll never actually, you know, finish another track. So I always have to sort of like, be like, thank you so much. Goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. So um, there's a style of responding to emails called CEO style responding. You know about this? No. It's literally that kind of shit. It's like somebody will send you like some big verbose thing about a thing or whatever. And then you'll just like say, thanks, we're looking into it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Last night, um, I don't know if it was a friend of yours or a friend of, uh, uh, I, I don't know, somebody who, who introduced themselves after I had left the backstage of your show. And um, and they like asked me, he asked me for my email and, and I was just like, no, 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 don't like, I, <laughs> like I'll, I'll say, I'll say that I, uh, you know, that I will, but I know that I'll put it off like, and then it'll just, I'll just be a shithead about it. They were, they were asking you for your email. Yeah. But, and I was but, like, no, no, tell me now. Like, oh, let's okay, have this yeah. conversation now because like, right, I, yeah, I'll, yeah. I want to have the conversation, but you know, when I get the email then I'll put it off and I'll just keep putting it off and I'll end up in the thousands that like I never Interesting. That's good that you were like willing to have the conversation then though. Like usually what I'll do is if I don't want to have a conversation, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, just email me. Yeah. Because it's so, <laughs> it's really easy to like passively not answer it then. Yeah. But then also it sits in your inbox and you feel guilty and. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I just, I, I realize, yeah, it's almost like, I, I think I described, I think I was like, no, I'm too much of a piece of shit to like respond to the email. <laughs> like I need to, nice. I need to actually engage in this now, but. That that is the case. Like I have, it's always a thing where I have correspondence I really want to respond to, but I just I don't know. I'm like waiting for a magical day when I'm sick or something when I'll get the flu and I'll just respond to it all or something. I don't know. Yeah, you don't write music when you're sick. Uh, I probably do. Yeah, I suppose I do write music when I'm sick. It fucks your ears. Like when you get sick, it because the U station tubes attached to your throat mm-hmm. or whatever. I guess like it fucks your hearing up a little bit too. I've tried to do a few mix downs when I'm sick before, and it's yeah kind of tricky to get anything sounding proper. Yeah, if you have a cold, and yeah. then you there's like a week after a cold where I like can't really mix anything down, or mm-hmm. can't really don't really want to do anything. Yeah, but. I don't know. But that's like a lot of now a big issue I run into is I'll make tracks and I don't mix them down. Okay. Have you been doing this at all? Is this this? Um, yeah. Yeah, I do do this. And for me, I've what I have noticed though is like the mix down is kind of everything. Like you can have somewhat of a just average track, but if yeah. it has like an insane mix down, yeah. it can kind of make it like a 10 out of 10 track almost sure yeah it it gives it like some extra crazy value same with the sound design it's like this whole genre is based around this shit i feel like where it's just like the there's a formula there like psytrance or drum and bass or halftime or or something like that dubstep and they're just like 
the entire art form is like sound design and uh, really tight sequencing and really, really good mix downs. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. It's like if you don't do those three things and then you just try and rely on the songwriting in those genres, then you'll just like fail at it. But I think for your style, it kind of <clears throat> the attribute is not necessarily the mix down usually anyways. Yeah. Like I, I think of mastering when, when I'm writing a track, a lot of times I think of mastering as I'm doing it as sort of like this part's going to need to be quiet and this part's going to need to be loud. And, and it, there's going to have to be this discernible difference between those two things. Um, probably a bit more than the average artist does where they just, and I, and I say that as somebody who masters other people's music from time to time. Um, I feel like the average artist just kind of wants that boost and wants things to be kind of sounding like everything else on Spotify mm-hmm. or something. And I think at some point I started looking at volume as a tool rather as like as an emotional tool um, that I should be utilizing rather than worrying about having that, uh, whatever it is, that accolade of being the loudest most you perfectly like the the mix down is like a writing tool more so than mm-hmm. like a function. Yeah. And so that's why, uh, so a lot of times I'll have stuff, but the weird thing is a lot of times I'll have stuff like completely ready to mix down, mixed, everything. All I got to do is press that export button and I, I just move on and I never go back. And and it's hmm. so bizarre because I'm at this point I'm losing like four out of five tracks just to that oh, really? weird phenomenon where I'm just like, oh. I'll be bothered mixing it. Yeah, but it's not even that. It's just like I'm just done with it. Like I just want to like bury it in the ground. I'm sick of it. I don't hear it. I don't want anybody else to hear it. I'm just. Yeah, I feel that. I mean, maybe the solution to that is just to sit on it for like a year or two and mm-hmm. then bring it back out and mix it when you feel like it. Yeah. When you're like, oh shit, I feel like I need to put an album out or something. Right. You can just quickly dig through all those finished things and, just, and then it's just like you know a few weeks of mix downs. Like the last full length album, uh, Piety of Ashes, I think I probably have like 35 to 40 tracks at least that, you know, ended up eventually. It was just like, okay, I guess it's time now to like select some of these and then the rest of them just, you know, didn't go anywhere. And I don't know why I do that. I need, because I don't really think that any are better than the others to the average person's ear. And mm-hmm. like releasing music really is about just like making a living, kind of, right? You know, you write it yeah. because you love writing it and you release it because. I almost feel like releasing music, um, I mean, it's the other side to writing it. And if I don't do it, I feel like I get like emotionally blocked or something like that. Mm. Like, fuck, this stuff has to like be not on my hard drive and just somewhere else yeah. where I feel comfortable now deleting it from yeah. my life. And, you know, now other people have it. And now I like, and then it's kind of like a wave washes over me. And I'm like, oh, fuck, all right, that's done. And now I can like actually feel clear headed enough to start new projects or something. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good way to look at it. I kind of look at it like that and a mixture of like writing music is just sort of like sitting in a bathtub full of like chocolate pudding and you're just enjoying this warm chocolate pudding. And then, you know, when you release it, you have to like clean the bathroom because that's when I have to, (laughs) that's when I have to go through like the, uh, shortening the tracks to, or, you know, like I guess sort of making everything sound good together. I have to deal with promotion. Mm. I have to deal with shows. I have to deal with interviews. I have to deal with, uh, artwork, uh, cd companies you know everything and that's when all of a sudden my schedule gets busy with things that aren't writing music and so that makes sense so it's almost like um the right yeah that's interesting because a lot of people have that about actually writing music it's like the last track they finished was so involved in terms of like the editing maybe or the everything really that they had to do to get that done that starting a new track seems to be really daunting yeah they're like oh fuck i don't want to have to like go through that whole thing again but you kind of seem like you have that not for writing music but for releasing music yeah releasing music and if i write a track that i'm really happy with i'm usually like the same day i'm starting a new one like it's it's i get that 
I like I listen to it back. I listen to the master. I listen to the mix of it, and I'll get I'll get the chills, and then I'll be like, oh, I want to write some more. I want to keep going. Like I have that yeah, I that, feel that little too. dopamine rush from. So you're pretty prolific then. Like how many tracks? Like how long do you reckon it takes you on average to write a track? If you took like every track you've ever written, like do you think it takes you oh, about God. a day? So or back in the day, like back in like Red Extensions of Me era, I could probably do two a day. Interesting. And I would just go crazy. Now I'm spreading stuff out because. I'm not sure. I, I I think I'm just trying to always sound better than the last thing. Yeah, yeah. But that never that never makes sense because it's music and it's subjective, right? So, um, I I get hung up on things like like I'll make a track and then I'll be like, okay, so this melody, uh, isn't complicated enough. This melody, uh, there it's using too many black keys. Mm. It needs to use more white keys in there. Yeah, just stupid things. I'll invent little things to put in there. Um, or even certain things where it's like, this just isn't clever enough. Like this, this part of the song has to sound the same backwards as it does forwards melodically or something dumb like that, which is stuff I've done in tracks too, where it's just like, I don't know why. I mean, it's just (laughs) interesting little puzzles to make it more challenging for yourself. I was having this conversation with my girlfriend the other day. I was like, it'd be really cool if I made like a, a she actually I said to her I was like it'd be really cool if I just made like you know two tracks on an album or something where when you layer them over each other like they put each other out of phase and you get like a third ambient track or something like that mm, yeah she was like it'd be interesting if you made a three track EP where you could layer any combination of them to create a new track so therefore you'd have the three that you released plus another four I guess so you'd have seven total. yeah so you could layer all three together or you could layer tracks one and two or tracks one and three or tracks two and three yeah and then like create some weird phase correlation or maybe just some like rhythmic complementariness or something. Uh-huh. I feel like that's some shit boards of Canada might do. <laughs> I, well, it's funny cause I, um, forever I've been sort of planning and writing another all piano album and I wanted to write it to where, uh, or write it where it would, the entire thing would be a palindrome where like the first song and the last song, but everything would just be phrased differently and faster and slower. Mm. But if you took all the notes, like if you just took sheet music from like the first song all the way to the end of the last song and then just inverted it, it would be exactly the same. Sheet music wise. Yeah. And so like I've, there's a, uh, there's a couple tracks I've done that. There's even like a piano track where I've done that, but like doing a whole album, like it was just, I, it was one of those things where I was just like, oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to work on this so hard. And I just realized I'm not clever enough to do it. And, like, and it how just, important for you do you reckon it is for somebody to figure that out? Oh my God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine yeah. like listening to it? Like if you loved the album, like let's, let's take an album that like for me, it would be like if I discovered that that was the case with like the downward spiral or something, like my head would just pop. I just feel right. like, oh, oh yeah, like, the best true. moment of my life, right? So I think about like, for instance, with that, that phase idea that I had, um, the the only reason I don't do it pretty much is because I just don't think anyone would ever figure it out. Yeah, I was about to say that. Like nobody's gonna figure that out. Um yeah, yeah. it's unless gonna, you like made it real obvious or something. If you And then what's the point? If you ended up like killing a bunch of people and then there's like a Netflix series on your life, <laughs> yeah. then like some like guy in a university would be like, the freak made his made these tracks or he'd phase them. Yeah, he'd, <laughs> he'd figure re- it out. Refer to you as the freak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no, but uh yeah, I mean, anytime I've done stuff like that, it's very, very rare that anybody's figured out the little puzzles. I, m- my best friend, uh, Andrew Harris, um, he releases music as Bartel, and he, he like literally, ref- he'll listen to a track of mine and he'll be like, is this a puzzle track? And I'll just be like, yeah, no, you know. Interesting. Like, yeah. and so what other puzzles have you done other than sheet music palindromes? Um, a lot of times, a lot of times there are emotional things, like certain things will be linked. Like one thing will be a certain song backwards. Uh, there is a track, a track I just did recently has, it's the same melody 
I believe four different times, but they're all timed different. They're all running on different clocks. Mm. And, but I had, I made them all like, you know, come together at the right time. So that sounds like it's just one big odd fugue type thing, but it's all okay. the exact same melody, but you know, one's on like a 30 second note. And then the other one's like a new note happens every four bars or something. And, and it comes from the, obviously like with the clocks, it was from the modular. Like it's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. ideas like that are a bit easier. Yeah, that's, your module looks crazy. How long have you been into it for? Um, I started my voyage into modular with, uh, I did a score for Adler Planetarium's Planet Nine film. And I decided that I wanted to, that they're always really open to my ideas. Like if I want to have like a idea that's different than just writing music for the stars, you know, just something that's a little more involved. And for that one, I wanted to write everything with logic gates mm. and, um, and sort of do everything with Boolean algebra. And as always, they're amazing. So they're just like, cool, have fun, you know, good luck. Let's, let's know how it goes. And, uh, and so I knew that like modular would be where I had to start with that. And so I pretty much took my budget for that score. And instead of spending it on like string players and things like that, I just started my modular. Yeah. <laughs> started my modular. And I kind of thought that I would sell a lot of it afterwards. So I didn't really think I would get into it. it yeah it just kept growing yeah and, oh, it usually happens yeah i mean i have like a bunch over there too i mean they're not everything that i have is in this rack right now it's just the only stuff that i currently use yeah but, that was sort of the same as me i got the the mother 32 and i was like that's probably good and then i got mm -hmm. an o coast and i was like uh it's probably i'll probably just stop there like that's enough little patching yeah. for me and then just got a p a pittsburgh modular 420 case and filled it <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're it the good news for anybody who's listening to this, going through this money hole, um, is that it ends. There is an end to it. Like there's an end where I like want to take stuff out and sell it, and like yeah, I agree. I think I'm at that point as well. It turns into like if a new module comes out that's really different than anything else or really useful, then mm -hmm. I'll be like, oh, I want that. But otherwise, I'm not really trolling yeah. modular grid anymore. I'm just kind of yeah happy with what I have. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um. So you said you write like a ton of stuff that doesn't make it to albums. How often, because you do like stuff for commercials and mm -hmm. and all that, like how often um, will somebody hit you up and you'll just dig through like piles of stuff that didn't make it to albums and just give them that and be like, does this work? Yeah, I used to do that uh, quite frequently, but now I have this massive library of stuff that I've written for commercials and television that actually that wasn't used and they're called corp like in the industry they call them corpses because yeah. they're just these which is like kind of this dark thing to say but um and so they're it's even better because they're 30 minute or, or sorry 30 second or 60 second clips of music mm -hmm. that you like i have this massive library of them so almost any time i could i i mean i have clients or other producers who come to me for my music and a lot of times they just don't have the budget to pay me a demo fee or something. So they'll just be like, Hey, send me some corpses. I'll be like, all right. <laughs> you know, hope the FBI doesn't see this email chain. Yeah. <laughs> um, a demo fee is like where if you make the thing for a company or whatever, but they don't pick your thing, mm -hmm. you still get money for it. Right? Yeah. And that's really hard to come. That's like most people who are getting demo fees these days are grandfathered in yeah. from, cause the ad industry, obviously, the television ad industry has taken a massive hit, of course, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Is that just because of stuff like Netflix and whatnot? Yeah, I, I realized I started my slow, like, I was, I was really, uh, I was really neck deep in that industry. And I was like making most of my living from it. And I was planning most of my future around it. And I remember one day I was at my mom's house 
and she uh, had a DVR and she just fast forwarded through ads. And I was like, if my mom is fast forwarding through ads, then like, yeah, then you know, fucked. yeah. Was kinda, <laughs> so that, that was sort of when I started to like try and get more involved with game stuff or just take like my career flashbulb career is, you know, not take it for granted and take it a little more seriously. And, right. um, and luckily that's worked out. So. Nice. So at this point, like your main things in terms of like making money and just like career stuff in general is the flashbulb stuff and yeah. game stuff. Royalties. Royalties okay. is my number one, um, which is so by beautiful. royalties, you mean like Spotify checks yep. and stuff like that? Yep. Spotify, uh, occasionally ASCAP and stuff like that. But, um, well, I mean, I guess like if you've done films in the past, mm-hmm. the, um, the PRO royalties can actually be pretty good. Like I did, um, that Nicholas Cage movie in my last few checks through APRA, which is the Australian PRO have yeah. been actually pretty nuts. Um, yeah, they're, uh, I know the Canadian ones yeah, pay out like, a lot better. The U S ones, I've never had a massive, uh, I don't think I've ever had a check where I've been like, awesome. I'm going to, you know, it's always been like, yeah me laughing and every now like before i open it I'll always be like oh let's see how much this one's for and i'll All open right. it and sometimes i'll be like eh, okay yeah, yeah. like 300 bucks here that's not that bad you know or something like that but um yeah ascap I'm, I'm not it's i almost don't want to say this on a podcast just because i don't think ascap is a non-profit company i think it's a for-profit company huh. and they don't have any sort of they don't tell you how what percentage of what you're getting ever like that they don't give that information to anybody. Yeah, they just sort of give you money and be like, yeah. here's your money. <laughs> yeah, right. They just say, it's like, it, I've always referred to him as like a, a grandpa who just sort of like, is like, all right, kid, here you go. Here's 20 bucks for the week. <laughs> um, but where, where the real fuckheads uh, comes in with like what they do to small businesses, like restaurants and stuff like that. Uh, they, I had an ex-girlfriend who managed a restaurant and one day, um, and she just basically was listening to, you know, Spotify. I think it was right around Spotify first came out. And they were like listening to Spotify in the restaurant. And there were secret agents who came in and wrote down all the music that was being played. And then they like said, okay, well, you have to get a uh, ASCAP. Uh, I think it was ASCAP who did this. It was either ASCAP or BMI, but as the story goes on, they both did it. But um, I have to buy like an umbrella license thing or whatever to be for like twenty five k for the year. Yeah, I mean it's good that there's people going around doing that though. Right. Well, so so this happens, and she came home and she's freaking out. She's like, "Is there any way around this?" Blah blah. And I was like, "No. If they catch you, you have to pay it. Otherwise, they're going to sue your restaurant." And um, and and but the weird thing is, she was like, "Well, I asked them what what to do in the future after we paid it, and they said, oh, you could keep playing Spotify.'" I was like, "Wait a minute." They, they don't know what you're playing yeah, yeah, at all. Like right. they have no metric for this whatsoever. Not only that, it's against Spotify's terms of service to be played in a public establishment. Mm-hmm. And they know that they, they very well know that. And so like, they didn't recommend her like Pandora for business or satellite radio or something like that. They right. just said, no, just keep using what you did. Fine, yeah. And it doesn't, and so they're essentially, they got paid for money that wasn't represented by ASCAP. And sure enough, a month later, BMI came through and the exact same situation happened there where they were like, oh, we heard a couple of our tracks being played. And, you know, the restaurant owner was like, no, we just gave ASCAP 25K. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, now you got to pay us. And so I, I realize now that the larger chunk of money in both of these unions is, um, is just legal fees. It's just a lawyer orgy. <laughs> like, it's like no artist is really getting anything from this. Yeah, that's insane. Um, 
Yeah, my my checks from APRA uh, have always been terrible up until the Nicolas Cage movie, basically. And then I started getting a few in the last few months that were like well over a few grand. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, I didn't know that was possible from... Because I know that like uh, generally you get paid like a couple of cents per play, right? So it's like to make any serious money, you need to be getting like hundreds of thousands of plays. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I don't really know how it works, actually. I don't think APRA gives you like the percentage breakdowns either. Um, what, what is the other one? There's sound exchange. That's another one that like, uh, they work with, I believe satellite radio and Pandora. And last year, I, I think I was just like, man, like my Pandora career is just taken off because I'm making quite, quite a good, I'm getting big checks from them. And I was pretty happy. And, and part of it like helped, like help me build the studio and stuff. I was, I was really like, wow, all right, my income's going up. And I just got an email one day from them saying, uh, that they've been paying me the wrong artist's money. Oh, wow. And that I owed them <laughs> some, something like the tune of like $27,000. Holy shit. And uh, the artist, his, I think his name is Grandma or Grandpa or something. He's a, I almost mm. want to look it up now. Because I, I talked to him on Twitter and I was like, hey, I've been getting your money for the last <laughs> year. And he like never responded. You know, he Holy never fuck. actually Did he have like it. many Twitter followers? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to look up his, his tracks are, uh, I don't want to say anything bad about his tracks, but um. <laughs> grandma artist i'm like looking up on my phone right now grandma moses is an artist um grandpa i don't know but anyway uh, (laughs) so they made the mistake of paying you did you guys both have like a similar legal name or something yeah we both both of our last name is jordan so um although i don't think his first name start with b i'm not i don't think his does no i think we just both had the same last name as jordan but because i did ask like how the fuck does this happen? Like, how do you, you know, and I, I didn't pay them, but they're essentially withholding my checks. And I thought about, cause I mean, that's kind of like, if you make an error that big, yeah, like, you can't be expected to then be, be like, Hey, you know, all that money that you thought you got from work that you didn't spent on a studio. Yeah. You got to pay it back. Yeah. Now. Right. And, and so, um, they're like, okay, well, we're just gonna, basically you're not going to get a check from us for about a year. And I thought about being like, Oh, well, I'm going to pull out, pull out of your union then. But, um, yeah. I don't know. Might as well be fair and let grandma get her money or his money or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grandpa, whatever the guy's oh, name is. That's it. crazy that that can even happen and have repercussions for you if they make the mistake. I mean, they're a big... Surely they have, like, business insurance or some shit. Like, they should yeah. be able to cover stuff like that. And the, the reason I the reason I tried hitting him up is because I wanted to make sure that he was getting a massive bump in his checks. Like, I, I wanted to make yeah. sure that they weren't just like, oh, well, he hasn't noticed, so... Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, put yeah. this in the old... Yeah. <clears throat> that makes sense. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, that other thing that we we're talking about upstairs that we didn't fully get into, which is um, you said you would you were doing shows or you had done shows in the past where they were basically kickstarted in yeah. that like so how does that work like you would go into a market like LA or something and be like hey uh, post on your social media and be like hey I want to play in LA and uh, if you want me to play preliminarily buy a ticket and if we hit three hundred tickets I'll come and play the Echo or something like that yeah Is that kind of how it works. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and there are a couple things that like needed to be tweaked a little bit because um, I, I did I did a show this way in Austin, Texas last year. It was maybe a little over a year ago, but it uh, it actually worked out and it worked out great in a place where I couldn't really find a promoter to pay me a decent advance. Do you remember the venue? Um, the venue was booked after. Like basically, we talked to the venue. Uh, my my booking agent talked to the venue. Yeah. I think it was like the Sidewinder or something. And okay. uh, so, what, um, when you uh, kickstart it, 
you say like, hey, I'm going to play a show in Austin if we hit X amount of tickets. Do you tell people what date or what venue at that at that stage? Or? Usually what date, um, but the plan is what date and then the venue sometimes would would come later because that way you could go to a venue and you could be like, hey, uh, we have 400 tickets sold. And do you want to sell alcohol to these people? You have so much more leverage when you do that. But um, now I'm starting to learn that it actually might be better to, once this gets off the ground a bit more, to have venues in cities that are just sort of partners right. with Showseed and just sort of... because Showseed is a thing that you developed? Yeah. Oh, yeah Showseed, yeah. Was, um, I started the idea uh, back when I was in Chicago and I announced it and I got sued within 24 hours by some guy in Vancouver who like had the same he said that he was patent pending on he had a patent pending on crowdfunding performances I've, so i've seen one service that did this before and i've i put it to my agent i was like hey why don't we do a tour this way um and they thought it was a silly idea they're like oh it's not gonna work because yeah. it's just like too tough to with to work with venues and dates and all that shit and then on top of that um it wasn't called show seat it was called something else but yeah yeah i didn't know that you had a company also that did this yeah well it it's uh i mean if you go to like showseed.com it's literally like just a holding thing that's like nice. hopefully coming soon um right. i have like a beta of the website it's just not like public but okay, yep. i have like a beta with like the whole transaction and everything working um and nice. i used it for that one show but uh i i, I think well, like some of the perks of this are like first of all it gives you a lot more bargaining power with a venue because yeah. you already have this many people uh coming to your show right. it's like a low risk thing yeah to hit up a venue and be like hey want to take this sold out Cause, show because running a venue is is really risky like when you think right. about it or it's being like a promoter. if you yeah if you open it and nobody mm -hmm. comes to the show it's like it really costs you you're paying a sound guy security yeah, you have exactly. bartenders who don't have customer or don't don't have people and they're pissed off and so i guess unless uh the venue is like working with a promoter and the promoter sort of eats that cost by, yeah. by ha paying like a venue higher fee or something right, like that. Yeah. And then there's like a, usually a line item called the nut, mm -hmm. which is just like, I think that just means like the nut to the door. Like, is yeah. that what it means? The house nut or whatever? Um, it, yeah, I think it just means like the ground expenses, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, bar people and yeah. lighting, electricity and shit. Sure, yeah. Just yeah. like how much it costs on average to run a night at the right. at the venue. It's funny they call it the nut. <laughs> yeah, it made me, yeah, I, I always wondered that. And for some reason, I I, I, I always imagined, because I've heard that before and I've, I've just imagined like the meat inside of a nut or something <laughs> like a cashew shell, but like the actual yeah, yeah. cashew you would eat like that. I don't right. know why I even think of it that way, but... There's a lot of weird terms that they use, but, uh, yeah. And so for an artist, I think, uh, obviously geograph like promoters and venues don't give a shit where you are the night before or after. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like now you have control over that and you can be like, okay, I'm in Seattle this day, Portland, the next day, San Francisco, two days after that, two days after that, I'll be in LA, then yeah, Phoenix. Yeah. And all of a sudden the artist is saving a lot of money. Um, yeah, yeah. but I think like the integration into, social media is probably one of the most powerful things because you could say like if if you were to buy a ticket um to an artist you want an artist to come see you and you're buying a ticket with like the motivation so like in a good example is in austin people bought some tickets for their friends just because they really wanted me to come out which is not something right. that i like want people to do but one thing that they really did do is share it with everybody yeah, yeah. and they said you know we gotta go we gotta get up to you know this many pre-sales to make this happen and so they would share it and you would naturally have that sort of i guess 
low-level viral sharing. Well, I guess yeah. What, what happens then is instead of just playing a show to like your twenty or thirty super fans in that market, mm-hmm. your twenty or thirty super fans become twenty or thirty miniature promoters in that market. Right. Yeah, and and they feel excited about that, and they when you finally get to the show, they feel like they brought you there, which yeah. which like in an abstract way they always have been, but now Absolutely. it's more direct. Totally. And um, and then they bring their friends and girlfriends as well, and then you have more sales at the door yeah. which is what happened in austin like it doubled the sales once the actual show came because a lot of people bought a ticket and then they brought more people with and well that's so. the thing yeah if i find shows kind of hit like a critical mass they'll be like you know if you only sell like 50 tickets to a show or something and that's like kind of not enough for the snowball effect to happen but like yeah if you sell out a show like 80 percent of the way it's almost guaranteed that it'll sell out 100 percent of the way on the night just because it becomes like the cool thing to do in town right yeah something. yeah I, I'm usually not subject to that. Um, I'm, I'm never the cool thing to do, I don't think. I think it's um, not a lot of artists. Uh, I think yeah, it's you're a, very, a cool thing to do, I think. I, I think uh, Depends on the show and the time and the place and all that stuff. Yeah. I think in Denver I can be. I don't, I think like, I mean, I still play a lot of real small shows. Sure. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, I really, it's kind of like a, I, I get, I sometimes get upset about it, but not upset, but I sometimes get bummed out about it, but I also see it as like a weird blessing in disguise of like never really think, being cool. But, uh, yeah, I think just uh, experimental electronic music is always a hard sell. And it's, there's really only one person or two people in the world who can do it and like play really huge shit. And that's pretty much Aphex. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know. Tom York or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Apex is usually a DJ set anyway. He's playing a bunch yeah, of fancy stuff. Which is fine. But right. like, um, yeah, he does mainly, I think at this point it's people pay him a lot and put him on these big lineups and stuff. Cause it's such a rarity and yeah. you know, it's kind of like a legacy act at this point and all that stuff. Yeah. But, and most of the people that you see at those shows have like, you know, they've never really listened to his music. They just know yeah, he's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. And it just kind of becomes like the cool thing to do or like the cool thing to go to. So you can tell your friends you went to an Apex show or something. Yeah. Not to take away from what he does. He's obviously insanely good. Totally. Yeah. And I think, but that is it. And it's, it's kind of, well, it's like, I, I guess how many, how many festivals have you played in your life where, I mean, there's just something I've experienced where I've thought to myself, had I put up a jukebox on stage that people could text a song that they wanted to hear, like it would have been so much more successful than mm-hmm. my show that I'm being paid thousands of dollars to play. And I'm putting everything into, I'm playing my <laughs> instruments, I'm doing everything yeah, yeah. right, but it's just people are at a festival and, you know, they're just not interested in engaging in music that much at that particular festival. You know? That's, yeah, it's kind of like the show last night. It's like, you know, we just DJed and just played, me mm-hmm. and Dylan were just playing heavy tune after heavy tune because it's like, at that time it's like people are drunk and trying to party they're not really trying to concentrate on like very intricate music are you gonna yeah are you actually gonna be able to like reach anybody and like change their perspective of music at that gig yeah Yeah, exactly they're probably not in the right mindset for that at that time and it's also probably not what they're expecting of us when we're doing the back-to-back thing anyway but um you know that's kind of why i started the label because i was like all right and i understand now that shows are like this yeah and this is what i do in shows now i guess <laughs> and then i started the label because that's kind of where i 
where I came from initially with electronic music was um, well, the way I got into electronic music actually was I went to like a psytrance party in Australia, which we call mm. a doof. And, <laughs> and I took a bunch of acid and started listening to like shitloads of that old school, like high tech goa trance stuff. Yeah. And then from there, I got into like Square Pusher and your stuff and Venetian snares and all that. So, like, I really very early on, like, getting into electronic music was into that stuff. And it's, so it makes me feel nostalgic and I really like it because before that I was into like technical metal stuff, you know, like Vale of Meyer and Dillinger and stuff like that. Sure. So, um, so for me, it's kind of like, I don't know, the the more technical, eloquent style of electronic music is stuff that I think people can eventually get into. But I think if you look through the music industry, like as a whole, <clears throat> um, this is something Saya told me the other day. He's like, I think we're just in like that sort of disco hair metal phase of electronic music right now with all mm. the bro step and dubstep and stuff. And he's like, eventually it'll come through the other side and all of the more technical stuff like te- like what happened with metal as well will sort of like surface more and become, there'll be enough people to kind of like fill in those markets as well, you know? Yeah, I do wonder. Um, and, and it's strange because I, I never really, I never really saw myself as like at some point in my life, I just got told that I was like a break core artist or something well, or then it, it was like two albums that were, it was like, well, sure. It was like IDM or break core or whatever it was. And, and I never truly never thought of it that way. Like I never, I've never been, I guess if you've, if anybody who's listening to my music could probably guess that I don't really pay attention to genres. I'm just kind of all over the place. And I've always looked at it as like, there's two genres. There's like fun music and then emotional, serious music. Yeah. And yeah, I would agree with that. And it's like really successful people can hit both of those chords. And, yeah. and I'm not one of those. Like I, I don't make very much fun music, um, right, right. which I've just never been, I've never had a knack for it. I've like done acid wolf albums and stuff and I've tried and but it's just not been as uh you know in, not nearly as impactful or perfect sounding for that type of thing as something like dead mouse right or anything else um well he makes a lot of really emotional stuff too now he does yeah right uh, more more recently i haven't i haven't yeah, like the netflix polar stuff that mm-hmm. he did that was sick and pretty emotional and then he also did um the symphony stuff yeah where uh, he he did like um all of his tracks with like a however many piece orchestra at the will uh the wilton in la okay yeah yeah he did like two nights there yeah he's he's a talented dude for sure yeah. I, i'm always i'm always angry when when people like take a piss on him or mm. you know, like for no reason i'm yeah. just like why why do you why but like people a lot of times people like mention dead mouse and then just sort of look at me like waiting for me to say something yeah, to mean like, and i'm it's like opinion? Oh, he's a dude who like started in his bedroom and makes yeah, yeah. great well, here's music. The thing. His, yeah, yeah. Here's the the thing about Dead Mouse is like if you're into like banging electro music, you'll like it. If you're into weird emotional shit, you'll yeah. like it. If you're into IDM, you'll probably like it. If yeah. you're like, yeah, he really does hit a lot of things for a lot of people. And it, I think it's sort he's of, a perfectionist, and you can hear that like in yeah. everything he does. And and again, like just with how I make music, like when I listen to music, like just because it's dance music or just because something is like. Yeah, just because something's that genre, I'm not immediately like, no way, I hate that music. I only like this music. I don't really play that game. I've never, never been into that. Well, it's a, it's kind of doing a disservice, I think, to yourself as an artist to be like that. Of course. Because yeah. then when you go to write music, you just like, when you're writing music, you really don't want any boundaries. Like, I, I think like the the most creative thing you can do is to realize that anything is susceptible to be anything. Yeah. And in the music writing process, realizing that everything can be 100% malleable and changeable as you're going. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, in genre, that's like 
a, a realization that that I sort of started with, but one that I'm starting to get a lot more now is with melody and stuff. Like there is no wrong. Like there literally is no red light anywhere in music. Like there is stuff though that I think like uh, collectively we see to be less pleasant sounding though. What I've been doing like for the last couple of years is I've been finding something that's wrong. Like I'll write a track or something and I'll be like, uh, maybe I should change that. Or, or I'll even just be playing the piano and I'll play the wrong chord mm -hmm. and then I'll stop and say, okay, wait, all right, so let, let's try this again and let's try and make it right this time. And, and it's always possible. You can always do it. And especially it just depends how you're listening to it. I, I almost wish like I could just like plug a MIDI keyboard in there and like to demonstrate, but I suppose I what my channels for or something, but, um, Okay, a great example is for anybody who listening who's musically inclined to play a uh, to play a C major seventh on with one with their left hand on a piano, and then play a C pentatonic with their right hand, and like okay, so that makes a lot of sense. You just have this like, you know, this like a blues scale this nice C. Over. It's just this pretty general C with like. The the C major seventh will have a B at the end as a tail sort of you know put a little suit on the chord, little little bow tie. But um, so now with your right hand, uh, play a D pentatonic and then put, still play that C major seventh with your left hand, but play it all at once. And you notice that F sharp is going to sound rotten in there all of a sudden. You're going to have this F sharp in the middle of a C major seventh. But if you just play it and play around with it enough to where your ear gets used to it now all of a sudden playing both the c major on both hands sounds wrong and now that sounds right and it's just because and it's it's not even that like it's something that like it's not something where you know you have to be like a jazz major to appreciate like i, I think anybody if it's just played with the right finesse and if it if the chord that leads into it or it leads out of it, I guess my point is, is that there's just there's like no wrong key to any chord. Is the, the example you just gave though? Would you say that's more likely happening due to contrast or due to exposure therapy? Because <laughs> I mean, like um, if, you, if you're playing it wrong enough, you're exposing yourself to it enough that eventually it sounds right, yeah. and then doing the other thing sounds wrong. Or does the other thing sound wrong in contrast to the thing that now sounds right? Or I, I think that I think that for most people, if I if I led up to it, if I were playing, if I were improvising, if I were just playing something on the piano and I led up to it expecting to play uh, an F sharp over a C major or a C major seventh, um, it would not sound wrong to anybody. But, and if I expected to play just a straight up C major and with both hands, um, it would not sound wrong to anybody. But I think if you play the two next to each other, one only one can like sound right at mm -hmm. the time yeah um but then if you even make a challenge of like okay now i'm gonna make a song that goes from like that uh c major pentatonic scale on the right hand and now we're gonna go to a d and we're gonna bring that f sharp back in we're just gonna go one to the next i bet if you wrote it with the right timing and finesse you can make it sound right and that's sort of what i'm running into and that this is actually a problem with writing music for me and i think this this exists i feel like as people get older like like older people I know that are 50, 60 years old, they, they sort of run these issues where like the, the fence that, that used to be around me, I used to have this like little yard that I lived in melodically and it just kept growing and growing. And now like, I can't see the end of it anymore. Right. And it makes it really hard for me to write. Interesting. And I'm not sure how it affects other people's ears, but 
I mean, I never listen to your music and think it sounds wrong. I always listen to your music and think it sounds melodically interesting. Okay. But I never yeah. hear it and be like, well, that's like way too dissonant or something. And I do have that with some music, like especially noise music, like Mersbo or something. Right. If yeah. I listen to that, I'll be like, oh, this is melodically fucked. Like, well, so what do you think about like Giant Steps? I'm actually not really familiar. Okay, like Coltrane's Giant Steps? I've listened to it once or twice just because people have asked me to, right, but yeah. I, I honestly don't remember it. Because that's like melodically wrong everywhere. Like everything yeah. about that track's wrong from yeah, a okay. musical perspective, but Can it's... Can you hum the melody of it? Uh, <laughs> so off-key. Uh, you know, does that ring a... I don't think so. Okay. But, I mean, yeah. if it's... Uh, I mean, most jazz I listen to, who's a by Coltrane? Coltrane, yeah. Most Coltrane I've listened to doesn't sound melodically wrong to me. So everything is, yeah, that and Moments Notice are like the, are two of his tracks that are just bananas when you like look at how they're, how they're written. Like everything, right. every, so, so everything's like hopping around with, I believe in Giant Steps, it's fourths. Everything's hopping around with chordal voicings. And then, uh, the, improvised solo over it the the counterpoint every time every single so, so it's moving like this fast like da 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 every single time you go through one of those dot dot the scale changes right. with the improvised and so to a to a human brain this is just nonsense this just sounds like to anybody just listening to it in their car it should sound like nonsense and when right. most the reason it's giant steps is such a legendary track is that when if you study it and if you play it slow on the piano and you're like, okay, I'm going to stay in key on each one of these scales as I'm hitting it, it sounds like nonsense. And it's not until it's only like, I can't play giant steps and have it sound good. I could try, but it'll always sound like nonsense. But real, like the highest level of jazz musicians, um, they, it's like their heart finally goes, their heart and their brain finally match up and they, they can just feel it and play it, like just f- kind of how Coltrane did, to where it sounds absolutely perfect and absolutely right. And there's nothing wrong with it, even though all of the notes are just utter chaos. And so right, right. that's sort of the last track that you'll learn in your life <laughs> right, to play okay. correctly. It's like the, the big boss. Yeah, there's like not, yeah, the boss that's, track. Yeah, I don't, so I actually don't know um, music theory really at all. Mm-hmm. I know like a tiny bit of melodic music theory, like I know what a fifth is and i know what like yeah, an yeah. octave is and stuff like that and i know like i understand all like the rhythm stuff and time signatures and subdivisions and all that stuff yeah um but as far as like uh jazz theory i have no idea it's i mean it the first it, it's kind of interesting it my mom always for some reason my mother does this thing i i don't know if she's just fucking with me at this point but She'll introduce me to people and or introduce me to people who have listened to my music that she's shown my music to previously and then uh-huh. be, then say, and can you believe that he doesn't know how to read music? You don't know how to read music? No, I know how to read music. And, I'm just always, <laughs> and then I always correct her and I'm like, I know how to read music, but it's like irrelevant because I'm not writing things like yeah. Beethoven on, the, right. on a so, desk, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think in some ways... Um, what I always tell people who who are like they always I get asked a lot if I know music theory because a lot of my stuff just has a lot of notes in it. Yeah, and people are like, oh, cool. Where'd you learn music theory? I'm like, I, I've never learned music theory. Yeah, um, as if you have like a, a piece of wax and like a 
the old pen and you're like yeah so they're like well how do you how do you make all that stuff and my answer to to them is like well i think like if you just listen to enough music you just get cluey enough as to what you like the sound of and you can figure it out and then i think music theory is like better as like a justification tool like after the fact sort of thing it's it's i mean what it really is is it's it's a language to communicate with other musicians right so if you're so if you're in a vacuum writing music by yourself in a studio yeah (laughs) yeah right It, it i've when i've used music theory it's been when I've had when I have a violinist coming and I need them yeah. to play something and I don't feel like going through them you know making them memorize it or something yeah, it's yeah. generally and so just handing them piece sheet music that makes sense. having them do I usually use a melodica with violin so that way I could like play it on give it some like you know you know a lot of like the yeah, yeah. keyboard harmonica I love, type uh, thing I looked up a um a video once of the melodica and the top comment was like hey bro why are you smoking that piano <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, those are like great to train uh, if you have like a saxophonist or a uh, or a violinist or something. Those are like great to like show them where you want your. That's like the only justification I've ever had for owning one of those instruments. But yeah, and you came from the jazz scene in Chicago, right? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you kind of need to know music theory, I guess, if you're playing with jazz people. Uh, sort of. To some degree. A little bit, yeah. Um, I mean, you, de- you definitely do have to have, you have to be able to read charts. Yeah. Um, but jazz is more charts than sheet music because you're just improvising over charts. So they'll just, it, in Chicago, like, especially, you know, 10 plus years ago, um, you'd get booked at a jazz club and you wouldn't know, like, I'd be the guitarist and I wouldn't know the drummer or the sax player. Right. Um, or, you know, whatever instrument I was playing at the time. And, and then you just have your your fake book um, or your real book, which just has like charts for a bunch of jazz standards. And then you just be like, okay, we're gonna go from there. So here we go, autumn leaves. And then you know you start there, and then ten minutes later you end up somewhere else completely. And uh, it's it's a phenomenal experience. Like I miss it so much living here because we just don't have that here in Atlanta and in Chicago. It's not that common anymore either. To just have like random jazz freestyle. Where where is the sort of last frontier for jazz now? Probably New Orleans, right? Like Tokyo, honestly. Tokyo. Yeah, really? probably Japan seems to have a pretty pretty thick jazz scene. I'm sure New York has Vegas. Um, I to this day, whenever I'm in Vegas, I'll go to the Bellagio and just listen to a trio. Like they always seem to book jazz just to like you know follow that vibe or something. But nobody actually gives a shit. It's just right, like right. you know three drunk people just being like cool. <laughs> um, yeah, the Japanese Jap- Japan seems to be pretty pretty into jazz still. New Orleans, it's a little touristy. It's just sort of like a parade with like jazz musicians marching along yeah, or something. It's just like Bourbon Street and Fredericton or right. whatever. Yeah, so I've, not, only, I've been there once and um I walked down Bourbon and down I think it's Fredri- Fredericton or Frankenstein or something, <laughs> whatever the fucking <laughs> other street is that starts with an F. Yeah. Um and we went into like a ton of clubs. I was with a few friends and I think I saw like three or four different jazz bands on a Monday night just walking down really? those two streets. But I think, yeah, from my experiences, it's always been kind of older, like old school, like sort of like a small jazz ensemble, like trying to play like Prohibition era music right. rather than, yeah, uh, rather than, you know, some crazy like freestyle jazz thing going on. But to to be fair, um, before Katrina, I had been to New Orleans twice before Katrina, and it was like a completely different city. And I almost feel like that's like a hipster thing to say, like, oh, you totally <laughs> should have saw it before the hurricane destroyed it. But when when, when did that happen? Uh, two thousand five, two thousand four. Okay, I, think. I went in twenty sixteen, so okay, long yeah. after. Right, yeah. It it's it definitely made. I mean, there used to be like little voodoo shops and like 
like actual greasy jazz clubs that didn't seem like they had like a license to even exist. And now yeah, yeah. it just kind of got like glossed over with like, have you been into, the, have you been into that club that has no electricity there? It's like a little bar. That's apparently like one of the first bars that existed there and they just haven't hooked it up to electricity because they were just like, yeah, well, let's try and why do it, it now. Yeah, yeah. And everything's like gaslit there too. They have like gaslight piping yeah. throughout the city and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't been there, but that's, it sounds like a fun place as long as it's not super hot out or something <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah but no nah, it is it's a, it's a great city but it, it did lose that whole like french quarter area it just seemed to lose like it's uh, a bit of its flair after the hurricane which yeah fair enough to no to no offense or fault of people in new orleans like it's, it's massive massive tragedies so right yeah, yeah it's like you would expect that um Let's talk about game stuff, I guess. Yeah, sure. You said you were working on some of that. How much yeah. can you talk about? Not much. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah a lot of NDAs. Um, but uh, well, I guess like you could probably talk about how you got into it, right? Into game audio? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's funny. I, I initially was working with this big... Uh, I was working with an agency that did a lot of ads and stuff, and I wrote a business plan to... Like basically, I was like, all right, let's move on to the next frontier here because that industry shrinking and game industry, I believe even at that time, was worth more than television and uh, film combined. And so I was like, let's just leave these two, <laughs> these television and film things and go into game because it's just, it's a massive industry. And so uh, this is really funny because this is like 2010, I think, when I did this. I wrote a giant business plan to move down to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, work with, and I used a specific uh, game company in my business plan that was just hypothetical. It was just this mid-level game company that doesn't have their own studio yet. And it was like, let's, and we would try and go after a company like this to be our client to be one of this is an example and then we would buy a big house in the suburbs of atlanta because it's the most traveled or it's the biggest airport in the world so it's cheap to fly in and out and basically what we'll have is this sort of retreat where uh the composers and sound designers will work down there and then when we have the game director or uh producer or creative director or whatever they could come in and you know once every couple weeks stay swim in the pool enjoy a weekend out here and then go back to wherever they're from. And that way we could keep costs down. We don't have to pay like LA prices because that's where all the composers were at the time. And they, one by one, I went to, I I like don't want to use specifics because I don't want to like publicly trash this agency, but I went to the city where this agency was and like got, didn't even want to do it in their office, like got a boardroom in a hotel and rented it out to like show them this whole presentation. And one by one, every employee like canceled that morning. Oh, fuck. And, and I was just like, wow. All right. And I just felt absolutely shitty. And weirdly enough, it, I never, I, I sort of just threw it away. I was just like, all right, well, you know, maybe, maybe someday I'll get in the industry. So I just sort of randomly picked a place to move and it ended up being like the suburbs of Atlanta. And then out of nowhere, uh, that same game company, contacts me asking me to like work with them and so i ended up doing the exact plan almost right but just without even trying like it just naturally <laughs> fell in my lap and so yeah at the end of that i was just like wow i could have they would have made a massive client and they would have entered entered this industry but they right, right. didn't show up that morning so 
Damn. Dicks. But. Yeah. So um, I guess I don't know if you, how much you want to talk about the stuff that you do in game audio or not. Yeah. So physical modeling is kind of where I'm, I, I feel like when I started doing it, it was it was a bit of like there's only one or two companies doing it. And now I feel like it's just way more popular. But yeah, uh, instead of using a million wave files to try and create sounds that are in games, uh, it's actually more... Uh, I guess, efficient on resources to make them from scratch if they're not terribly complicated, if it's not something like a human voice where an ear recognizes it in a very specific way. But Have you seen that thing called Liabird yeah. online? You just say like sure. 50 sentences into it that it gives you and then it can reproduce your voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a, uh, I forgot what it's called. There's one on GitHub too where you could actually do it yourself. And I made a, uh, on Twitter for for a couple for a couple of weeks, like once a week, I would just like have me saying a sentence and it just as it was like that, this little computer down here actually is like my deep learning station. If you could see how massive it like oh, goes Jesus. all the way back to the, yeah, it has a bunch of that's GPUs it. in there. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's currently learning right now. Um, not at the moment, no, but, <laughs> but that is like the, that is where all that happens. Um, it's a giant computer for people listening. It's about the size of a, like a treasure chest or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably like one of those old antique chests that like yeah, your yeah. grandma has. Yeah. But that's just like loaded with like cooling and GPUs and stuff. And so, Crazy. yeah, I got really into deep learning for a while, but I, I still am. I mean, it's like, a really you're like a fan of generative music too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, so like, what's your, uh, your theory or just thoughts on um, computers being able to write music as adequately as a human. Because I have so many friends who (laughs) just do not even think it's possible at all. And they think that like um, every time they write a song, there's like an infinite amount of decisions they had to make to get to the end of it. (laughs) And that there's no way in hell a computer could make those same decisions. Whereas to me, I'm like, Honestly, the amount of files on your computer that are related to your audio production process, so let's say like even the amount of files on Splice or the amount of plugins that exist or the amount of DAWs that exist or the amount of musical notes that are, yeah. that exist are all such finite numbers. And then the amount of like the actual things that we like in those uh, systems as uh, even a, a much smaller amount of numbers. So it's like, for instance, you have like say, let's say 10,000 kick samples on your computer. Mm-hmm. It's like that's a super finite number to a computer to, yeah. be, to begin with. But then secondly, you probably only like maybe 1% of them. Yeah. Like you would only use 1% of them in a song and the other 99% that you don't want to delete because you have um, issues with deletion, yeah. attachment <laughs> issues right. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you probably wouldn't use them anyway. So it's like uh, really if you could build a system on your computer that just sat there and just like kind of learned about your decisions and built a profile about you. If mm-hmm. you just had it running in the background for a series of months. I've done this. Uh, really? Yeah. The track's decent too. It's not okay. bad. It's not a terrible track. If I released and, it, people would probably think, oh, this is probably my, one of my least favorite tracks on the album because it's a little sparse or it's just a little odd, but it does sound like me a little bit. It does. It has this sort of sad, Sort of like a lot of my music sounds sort of dissonant in a way or sort of sad. And uh, oh, yeah. it also sounds, I, I would say like your stuff sounds sad and dissonant, but it also sounds like classy. I would say. <laughs> it's the major seventh chords, major seventh and major ninth. It just oh, puts, it a, puts the bow ties on. Yeah, it puts the bow ties on your chords. <laughs> so how did you, um, did you develop something that was just running in the background of your computer building a profile? Um, 
Yeah, so it, it used deep learning. It was one of the first things I did with deep learning, and I it, the biggest pain for it was going back through so many sessions and turning melodies into MIDI, essentially. And then I did all of the work in in terms of like giving it sounds. I did that on my own. Um, and Wouldn't you have also written a program to just look through all your FL files and extract the MIDI that way? Probably, but I I think. I probably would have been able to do that if FL was open source or something, oh, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um, is a, So I don't know if it's the same with FL, but with Ableton, the ALS file, if you turn it into a GNU zip and then you unzip it, it's just a big XML file. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think FL is the same. Although FL does have like, you could save as a zip and it has all of the samples and stuff in there as well. I, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to... I don't think if that's possible. Well, regardless, uh, you just need yeah. So with, I mean, at least with Ableton, I think you could have something just go through, look your uh, scan your whole drive for yeah. ALSs, convert them all to GNU's, unzip them, open all the XMLs, and look at look at it for MIDI yeah. information. I, I think so. The interesting thing with that though is like that's not generative music, right? The, like that's just morphing a bunch of other tracks together to yeah, create it's not really learning like I, I remember recently it's like every year we hear something where it's like oh a computer is making bach music that's new and it's like that doesn't make any fucking sense like it's making <laughs> new bach music bach's dead how yeah, can it make yeah. new bach music <laughs> um it's just you know essentially uh i mean i guess like uh for lack of a better example, they're like the Beat Step Pro. I really like the random on there because you can, uh, if you if you select a certain pad to be random, it'll select from other pads, and so it always sounds good if it's a chord. Like it, it won't just play something that you know would sound off key to you know the average person or something. But um, but when we think of like generative music in gen in general, we are we automatically have this contradiction. We start with because people don't like things that are random. We don't like random. Like random is just white noise, right? That's that's what random music sounds like. Yeah, that literally is random. Yeah, yeah. and so it's like the amount of carving you have to go through to even have a rhythm to even be able to tap your foot to it. You've taken ninety nine point nine percent of the random out. Right, And so then when you get down to melody and what we think is acceptable melody and, you know, chords and scales. and Yeah, it's like we take this entire spectrum, break it up into chunks of 12, yeah, and right. then we only really like seven at a time. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and so, so, it's, so, so I guess when the question is, like, can a computer just write a track that's as good as a human's, I almost always want to say no and and i think that it will at some point i i truly believe that it will but i think that that's scary because i think it'll be able to do a lot of other things that are way more important at the time such uh, yeah. as be conscious and you know well maybe the reason why it hasn't happened yet is just because it's not like a uh it's not important enough you know yeah like we have more important programs to build for humanity before we start dealing with music generation you wonder because I like where have we put most of our resources when it comes to like deep learning? Like, so when you think of some of the best algorithms that we have, like Netflix's algorithm to recommend you movies is a huge, oh, one. yeah, like the recommendations to like sell you things that you probably need. Yeah. Like, you know, um, I think there was some example where some 15 year old chick was pregnant and a like mm -hmm. some pregnancy kits got sent to her house by like a Walmart algorithm or something yeah. like that. And then the dad was like, Hey, what the fuck? And then it turns out she was actually pregnant. Yeah. Neither yeah. her or her dad knew that at that time. Yeah. And I, I've even seen things where I've been surprised where I've just been like, 
<laughs> like I, I'll just be like thinking about gardening soon or mm. something or, you know, thinking about like replanting. And then all of a sudden I have like gardening tools showing up in my Instagram. <laughs> like what? The? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have a question. Um, let's say hypothetically a, a computer right now could generate perfect music mm-hmm. that you, I mean, who's your favorite artist? Do you have a favorite? Um, it'd be really It'd be tough. I mean, I, let, let's just sit with Coltrane. For like, let's just do All right, it. so let's say you had a computer that just had every sample from a co- every Coltrane record and very yeah. similar ones and you know had a, his exact sounds and then it was able to generate, say, perfect Coltrane-style mm-hmm. music. Um, would you prefer to listen to the, the stuff that was made by humans or would you, see, would you see more value in it if it was made by humans versus made by a computer? Um, I think... I, I, it's funny if, if like whatever the fastest computer in the world is now, but let's just say I think deep blue was like the last popular one. Mm-hmm. If deep blue made it and they'd only made one, I would probably value it a whole bunch. If my computer was chunking one out every single day, uh-huh. then I probably, it would almost be like when people pirate software or pirate music and you could yeah. just have everything for free. And so you don't value anything anymore. Yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah. you, you know, if you spend 700 hours on a piece of software, you're going to learn every single thing about it. It kind of reminds me of like, it goes back to like, the reason I like Autiker so much is because I spent money on their music when I was, you know, 18 years old, 19 years old. And, and isn't Autica quite generative? Yeah. Like definitely. a lot of their stuff is just max patches, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and their, their music is probably unlistenable to, you know, 99 out of a hundred people. So actually, it's funny. I, I did find their music pretty unlistenable until mm-hmm. I saw the Grant's Graph film clip and the Plyphon film clip. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh yeah, okay. I can see how this isn't noise. Yeah. It's actually a rhythm that makes sense. It, it's yeah. And it's interesting. Cause there's like me, uh, Richard Devine, uh, Kettle, Reimer, like we're all people who just love, uh, Autiker's stuff forever. Mm. Like everything they put out, we just fall in love with it. And, yeah, Autiker is insane for sure. And and it's it's so funny though because I completely understand why most people are just like, turn this off, please. Like, yeah, you know, what will, the fuck am I hearing? It borders on noise for sure. Like it's it's very noisy. I think a lot of it for me is and and probably Richard and Kettle as well, is like I don't know how most of it's being made. I don't really understand what's happening. And I think that that's sort of part of it too is like most music you hear you could kind of put together what's happening in the studio or what's happening on the computer or whatever. Yeah. And with I thought occur. You're like, Oh, I have no idea what's happening here. Yeah. I think the reason why that hasn't been cracked is because there's not a lot of reward for cracking it. Yeah. Kind of like there's when Skrillex came out, it, he was, he got so fucking big so fast that the, everybody I think saw it as like a cat, like it's like a treasure hunt almost, you know, yeah. I was like, how do we make the Skrillex base? Right. And then everyone was like trying to figure it out on YouTube. And then obviously you get the hundredth monkey thing where everybody kind of cracks it at once. Yeah. And then it's <laughs> like, you know, it hits critical mass and everybody starts sounding like him. And I think if there was like that much reward for doing it for somebody like Ortecker, it would have been cracked a long time ago. It, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of an interesting, um, like there's this, this voice in my head that always tells myself if I hear something, um, a piece of music like Autiker or, or anything really. And if I, and if I think to myself, like I can never think to myself, I will make it, if, if this sounds good, and if this sold and if this did good, then, then I'm okay mm-hmm. because I feel like I, I may have made something that sounded better. I might be trying harder, whether it be like Autiker or some like shit band that I don't even like. I feel like a lot of musicians do that. And it sort of like reminds me of that Skrillex thing where they're like, if we could sound like him, then, then we've made it. Yeah, it's like, right. well, no, you, you 
that's you know so anybody who could plug a guitar into an amp but like Jimi hendrix was the first person to like do it yeah. with distortion and that's why he got the accolades he got yeah, yeah, like yeah. now you're just a dude who works at guitar center or whatever you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah no that's like an interesting that's like a huge a huge voice in the top of my head is like don't ever use somebody else's accolades as a uh like a milestone yeah as a motivator or even a milestone like yeah, oh i did it this well i can release it like it always has to be your own and from your own place yeah I'm, I, th- I think so um but i also sometimes will hear something that i like so much mm-hmm. that i'll be like i don't even give a fuck if i destroy the magic by figuring out exactly how this is done and trying oh, sure. to replicate it as like a learning tool almost that's totally okay i think what i mean is like if you did that and then you're like, okay, now I can release this because it sounds as good as the other thing. Yeah. Whereas like the other thing had its had its own time and place and like and that is over with. <laughs> and, yeah. and you have your own you have your own thing for somebody else to feel that way about. Mm, yeah. Um going back to um like whether or not you'd feel like a piece of music made by a computer had more or less value. I actually don't know where I stand on that. I think like if you showed it to me and I couldn't tell. Yeah. And then you told me like 10 minutes later after I'd been listening to it, enjoying it, that it was all made by a computer. I I honestly think I'd probably just be like, this is fine. I did this. I did this, uh, three part series on generative music on my YouTube channel. And, uh, in one of them, I was studying Sony. Have you ever heard that Daddy's Car song that Sony mm-hmm. made through using generative neural networks or whatever? Mm-hmm. So it's this completely shitty song. And it's I remember reading about it in the press when it first came. It was like two years ago it came out in there. And uh, they were like, it sounds like the Beatles. It's mm-hmm. like, sounds like a, a new Beatles song that computers made. And, and it's 100% computer generated and, and everybody was listening to it and it was kind of like popular in social media. And of course, like with me being like into computer music, like every one of my friends is like, you got to check out this link that you surely have seen a month ago anyway. But so I was just like <laughs> lambasted constantly with this one track. And so when I did this video, I actually researched it and I, I reached out to Sony and I asked them what, what they used to make it. And they didn't respond and I couldn't get any information from anyone. And it turns out that it's not really, Sony isn't transparent about what was generative about it. And it turns out that like the voice, which sounded odd, sounded a little off. It's just a French guy, but like, it's a real person singing. It's all real instruments performing. None of it is like, none of what you're hearing is generative except maybe the melody. So I'm like, okay, the lyrics are crazy. Like if you read the lyrics, they they just sound like a spam message or something. They're completely nutty. turns out the lyrics were written as well by this guy. And so what is generative about this track? I don't know, but it did get, it made me realize that the magic was the marketing boost that Sony got for just saying the word neural network and, you know, every yeah, yeah, yeah. wired doing like a thing. Bait or something. Right, right. That's what it turned into. And so it, I, I had a friend at RMIT in Melbourne, which is like a university in Melbourne who wanted to develop like a 60 iPad setup where you would just put iPads in front of everybody in an orchestra yeah. and it would just generate sheet music. Okay. You would still have the orchestra playing it. It's just that it would be generated by like the sheet music would be generated, yeah. but it got shot down because they were like, no, no, you can't like replace the conductor or whatever. Right. Yeah. There is a bit of that. I, I remember a bit of that happening uh, some years back with contact libraries and stuff Yeah, where like you would have... They're like, no, no, we can't replace violins. No making a violin library yeah. for contact. <laughs> right, yeah. And you know, always a bit silly. I think people always have this like this like binary style of thinking though, where they're like, Oh, if that exists then the other thing is just gone, you know? Like and it's like, no, not necessarily. I mean it will just change the nature of both things. Well pe- people fear change so much. Yeah. And, and they and they, they 
automatically kind of resist any new idea. Um, and e- even when they, like one thing I think is ridiculous is with the, the fake app stuff mm-hmm. like that, like I feel like it's just people are so over the top about how that's going to change the way that we see news and everything. It's like, no, it's not. Well, it's like it's, the, the, oh yeah, the, yeah, the, the deep fakes. Oh yeah. Deep fakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fake, I think fake app is one of the apps that um, uses. But. Yeah. Yeah. Those things are hilarious. Uh, well, it's like, you know, by inventing a car, it's yeah. not like we stopped walking or running. Yeah. It's like people will still do that, but it changes the nature of it and it changes what is possible to do. Like, you know, without a car, you couldn't go from here to however far you wanted to go. Like, couple hundred miles in a day you know yeah whereas like now you'll still walk to go to the store if you feel like it and all that stuff but it's like now it just opens up more opportunities and it kind of kind of reminds and we have this sort of obsession uh where we think about like anything that humans do anything humans do is uh just bad like any additional human progress is bad, like <laughs> right. no matter what. And it's going to be bad for the environment. It's going to be bad for animals. It's going to be bad. Like I, I'm big fan of animals, big fan of the environment. I go, I do tons of outdoor stuff. I love it. But like we evolved with it, like everything we see around us, we've evolved with that. Like it evolved alongside us. Yeah, it's just kind of like a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. We didn't just like drop in from space, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. at least not in the last hundred thousand years. Right. Right. And, Unless you, I'm sure some theories believe that, like last Thursdayism or some shit. You know, what is that? No, I never heard that. Where like you can't prove that anything existed before last Thursday. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, that that's a bit um, the Simulcra. Have you heard much about, well, it's not like a news. It's kind of from the 90s. I think the Simulcra simulation book was written. Um, is that like the Elon Musk simulation theory where... Uh, no, it's... So... Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of simulation theory. Uh, I'm. Uh, it kind of makes sense. It's like yeah, so. So for people who don't don't know about it, and yeah. like, let me see if I'm understanding it properly. It's that um, we as a species have evolved technologically so much that we're able to build like pretty insane computers to the point where we could probably in a few years with quantum computing or something develop a simulation of our entire reality within a computer because we'll have that much computing power. Mm-hmm. So the theory is that if we're able to do that, almost that probably preceding uh, species or whatever, maybe yeah. a species of ourselves have already done that. And that if they were able to do it, they would have generated billions and billions of simulations just for fun. And therefore, or to problem- solve a problem. Like there's right. a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why I could do that. And, and therefore like the chances that we are a simulation are much higher than we are real. Yeah. And, and I think a, a better way or, or a less crazy way of saying that to a person who had just heard of it is that, um, it's very likely that in the universe there are post-biological species and we, it is more than likely, literally, statistically, it's more than likely that we are a post-biological species and we don't realize it. Just if you're to look at the math and if you're to look at some other problems like uh, what sort of what got me addicted to this, I don't know if I ever mentioned this or anything to you, but I've, uh, for a long time, I've been like doing a lot of research on a podcast about ex- existentialism and about like each, it would be a short term podcast and only be like seven episodes, but each one would be sort of a different theory. And I got hung up on simulation theory, like big time. And, uh, yeah, I've talked to people who like, I work with like Adler Planetarium and stuff, and I've made some friends in the physics realms and stuff. And I've talked to them, uh, about this. And most of them are like, yeah, it's more than likely. 
that, that that's the case, but we still have to figure out like how that simulation works or we have to figure out if it's not, or, you know, we have to or, keep being uh, scientists. Right. Right. Or if it even like matters or changes the nature of our experience and stuff like that. Yeah. The, the overall for it's like one of those, whenever talking about it in any public way whatsoever, I, I almost always want to say like the pain you feel is still real. The yeah. pain, like, don't think that you can like go out and kill a bunch of people and like, cause you're, you're still going to be creating real pain and you're going to, f- feel the consequences of like everything still feels as real as it does whether whether or not we're a post-biological species but some of the more interesting things about it's like it solves the fermi paradox like why have we not had any contact with alien life why can if we can see very far into space why have we not seen any evidence of alien life we don't have any anything except for the you know the occasional ufo thing (laughs) that you'll see on youtube that gets debunked but it's just because like generating other whole species would just be a waste of computing power right yeah it wouldn't make sense uh we have Planck scale which is uh the smallest measurable scale that we could we we actually have a resolution like there is no infinite small it goes down to Planck scale and that's it and you think uh one of the arguments is that if this was actual real life then it would just be infinitely infinitely yeah everything could get infinitely smaller yeah that makes sense the one that maybe it does though and we just can't measure it Right, yeah, but I mean, Planck. There, if you read up, I don't want to like get into that totally, but like if you read up on like Planck scale, like why we can't get smaller, it's kind of like, well, that's an arbitrary rule. Why does that exist? And another arbitrary rule that a lot of people just sort of don't think about is relativity. Why is there a speed limit on reality? Like, there's a well, reality's clocked at the speed of light. Like, time is clocked at the speed of light. Which means, like, if you go faster, shit starts bending and getting weird. Yeah, and it just doesn't work anymore. You can't actually go faster. And so it's like, well, then why? Why? Well, why would we not be able to infinitely go fast? Why can we only go that? Why is there a speed limit on reality? So so this is kind of, like, leaning towards, like, perhaps all of these, like, limitations are just to save power, like, computing power? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I never really (laughs) thought about that, but, yeah, I guess that makes sense. you could even get silly with it and be like, okay, so like dark matter, like that's just unused clusters for future file storage. You could, uh, you know, like you could, it, we have a lot of like, next level, a lot of weird things when, when you think about physics, astrophysics, where it would make more sense if it was only rendered uh, when we were looking at that particular part of space but isn't that the case like it's um there's some sort of uh i don't know know what it's called but like when when you look at something it changes the nature of it and stuff like that uh the double slit experiment are you talking about yeah um yeah so when we were trying to figure out how uh particles behave we were trying to figure out if like subatomic particles behaved as uh just light or as waves Mm -hmm. and so if are you familiar with the double slit yeah, and, yeah. Um, I can't exactly remember the experiment. I know they shine light through two slits, and then uh, they they saw the photons hitting the wall behind it, or something mm-hmm. like that. And then yeah. by observing it, it like changed one of them. Yeah, so it uh, it behaved the way that they expected, but then, or I, I'm sorry, it, it didn't. But like when they looked at the results, it behaved as waves rather than the way they expected it to behave. But then when they observed it, it behaved as the way they expected it to, and so it basically observing it changed it and i've it's there's like two ways that i feel like scientists are kind of cut in half over this like half of them are like okay well when you observe something there's photons coming out of your eye Mm -hmm. like there's uh so of course it's going to change the way that something behaves but i i'm not really on board with that because i don't really understand why it would change 
the way something behaves that like what are the odds that it would change the way it behaves that dramatically like it might change where some of the particles ended up i don't understand how it would like one would make it act as a wave and one would make it act as a um as a light and the way that we would expect light to reflect so i guess going circling back to simulation theory their simulation argument is why would we uh it would perfectly make sense that things behave differently when we're not observing it because it would be more efficient. And so, yeah, right. Things yeah, that, so, like yeah. things in, uh, so you're saying the double slit experiment is like another plus one for simulation. Yeah, theory, like it could be right. You know, but y you can also look at a lot of like things that we don't understand. Um, it, it's important to, it's important to like admit that you could look at a lot of things that we don't understand and apply them to, uh, uh, Judaism, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or apply yeah, them like, to religion. So this or is you know? um, this is called apophenia, right? Like where yeah. you just take unrelated stuff and apply it to other stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. But when you look at the the mysteries that we have in in science, especially with quantum physics and especially with astrophysics, and look at them through uh, the eyeglasses of simulation theory, it, things do line up. A, it does answer a lot of questions, yeah, um, abstractly. Yep. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. It, it definitely seems like there's a lot of convenient answers there. Right, yeah. And and yeah, and this is, it, it, not that much seems seems like it's stretching as much as religion does. You know, religion totally. seems to stretch a bit more to, to find uh, to find answers to these questions. Yeah, I would say that makes sense. Um, speaking of like apophenia, I wrote an album called Apophenia and the mm -hmm. whole basis about it was like my friend asked me to write a concept album. Yeah. And I was like, I don't really know how you would uh, specifically like, you know, line things up in your music to actual feelings that we have in real life. Mm. So I was just like, I'm just going to call it apophenia and then people will make their own connections and right. like do their own shit with it. So I'm, I'm curious how you attack that problem of like uh, trying to impart like certain emotions or certain like vibes or certain messages into tunes without using lyrics. Yeah. Because obviously with lyrics, it's super tangible. You can just say, this is this, and I <laughs> yeah. feel this way. I got dumped, and my grandma <laughs> died. And Exactly. But with music, yeah. when you're like relying completely on sound design, I mean, I suppose you could use the sound of rain to mean rain or something. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, how, how do you usually deal with that? I think I, I've had a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of people message me. But I mean, I feel like any artist who's like released music long enough, they have people messaging them saying, you know, oh, your music got me through a really rough time or I was, you know, going through this. And, and I've had a couple that were as serious as like, you know, I was suicidal and your music got me through this time and stuff. And then they would cite a specific song. And then I would think to myself, like, that would be the last fucking thing I would ever have a suicidal person listen to because they didn't, they got the opposite message that I was giving like i was giving a very hopeless message and they got a message of hope out of it or vice versa and i feel like some are like obviously sad or obviously not sad but most of the time i completely submit to the fact that people are gonna you know interpret things in their own way and that's okay and that that's fine because it's more meaningful to them that way like n nobody no nobody cares about my ups and downs in my personal life they care about their own and so if my music is a tool for that then that's actually like one of the few valuable things to me about releasing music is that it actually inspires people or music in general actually inspires people or helps them through hard times. And when I get messages like that, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's why I do this other than just to be able to afford to write music continually for the rest of my life. Like that, that is, that is a good thing that comes from it. So I completely submit to it. I, I don't, um, I don't try to be literal in any way. 
Yeah, I'm the same. I don't try to either because I, I pretty much understand that like no matter what message I try to give in my music, somebody's mm-hmm. going to misinterpret it anyway. Yeah, and if, it, and if it's interpreted, even if it's interpreted 90% of the way, that's almost worse than them having their own perception of it, right? It's because like yeah. they're going to, being off by 10% about something that's like emotionally impactful to you mm. is is terrible, you know, <laughs> terrible to think about like, oh, they might, yeah, I guess it, Depending on how personal the message is to you that you're trying to give yeah, as well. Yeah, because that 10% is like... Yeah, it could like make or break the entire message sort of <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, Which right. in that case kind of makes it more like 50%. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I always yeah. think about music that like... So I'm really good at finishing like 90% of a track in like four hours or something. Mm-hmm. But then like that last 10% seems to take me like months to like decide mm-hmm. on. And in which case I start to look at it more as like 50 or 60% of the process. Yeah. Which is mostly just like... 50 or 60% of my music writing process is just me being comfortable with the song. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty interesting way of looking at it. Like, the entire album of Arboreal um, is kind of about, like, the the album itself is about writing the album and finishing the album. It's interesting. Sort of... Meta. Well, it was like, it, yeah, it was this sort of, like, my first, like heavily recognized album or at least album that like made it into like the media and spaces and actually like got you know put my name anywhere was soundtrack to a vacant life and then my follow-up to that was like this all of a sudden i had all this pressure to like release this new album that um would somehow be better and more impactful than than the one that had been successful and at the same time uh i just i had all these like pitfalls in my life like i i was just like drinking a lot and i wasn't like using any hard drugs or anything but i was definitely not being healthy um a, a good friend of mine a good musician uh a musician who i worked with a lot uh committed suicide i uh like i just i, I lost some family members like I, I was just it was really really hard to like stay on track and i and i realized at one point that like all i was trying to do was make an album that was more impactful than the last one Mm. and that and that was like the story of my life at the time like it so it was like that was my life at that point was the album so i have to make an album about making an album in a weird (laughs) way and that's sort of what it is it's about like the failure of being able to put that together and in its own way it's sort of but then i feel like now if you google the flashbulb in youtube or something undiscovered colors at yeah. least for me is the first thing that comes up yeah that's probably that's probably the most popular track which, which is, is fucking yeah it's a sick track i really like it well i mean it's just it's funny that it would turn out that way right it was that it would turn out to be this like yeah like that sort of almost like me taking a piss at myself right. in album form is turns out to be the most iconic one well that's maybe what like fun music is for you right is like writing it about a th- thing about you writing it or something like that maybe yeah um even though that's a really emotional track too, I think. But I think, I don't, honestly, like, there's so much of that, like, uh, let's go to the club and get drunk, like, banger mm-hmm. sort of stuff that there needs to be that, like, other side of it and that balance. And I think people really appreciate when artists do that stuff. I find when I write, like, really emotional music, generally online, it'll do way better. But obviously, like, at shows, it doesn't really do well. Right. Yeah, that's that's a big issue with me. And that's, like, uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than, like, trying to, like, play something really impactful and, like soft at a festival and then you just hear like from the other stage or something yeah yeah, yeah. um i've i've sort of like talked to my i understand like the desperation of doing because i'm just not i'm not 
famous enough to really like make demands like this or anything uh well, i but, think you have like a little cult following though like yeah i definitely think in cities you have like a few hundred people that will come out to mm-hmm. like every show for the next 20 years if you do it <laughs> yeah. um it, well there's a like one thing i keep telling my agent is that i really hope that i get to a point where i can only play seated venues like to where I can be quiet. I don't care if there's only 20 people in the venue. Right. Like, but if I can be quiet, I can play for four hours and be happy if I could like hit low notes and high notes and do all that. But it's just at venue shows like where you played last night, you just like, like you were just saying, you just have to be loud the entire time. You have to like keep yeah, well, the energy up. And I mean, you, you have to be at least louder than the crowd. Yeah. Right. Because everybody, and in a seated loud. venue, it's just rude yeah, to you talk. Yeah, you need to be and, quiet. And it's like, and it's weird to say, because I, I don't really mind people talking at my shows. It's like, go ahead. You're, you're here to see yeah. your friends. Like, I get it. But I feel like if I could just force them to give me like 10 minutes of their attention, <laughs> I might be able to like pull something off that, you know, could keep it for the rest of the show. Yeah. Well, that was one of the interesting points you made in your vinyl video is, um, you're like one of the things that I think is good about vinyl is the fact that it makes people like pay more attention to the yeah. music, which I mm-hmm. think is good. So it's kind of like in some way you just need to figure out what the vinyl is for a live show for people to <laughs> yeah. maybe just charge 600 bucks a ticket. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of like, so especially with show seed and too, like that's always been something I've, I've pushed back against is like tickets that cost more than 20 bucks. And like, and I've always just, cause then I get so mad thinking of like, whenever I've gotten like a message on Twitter or something from somebody who's like, Oh, I wanted to see you perform for years, but I couldn't afford it. I just, I want to like shoot myself. I'm just like, I can't believe that I'm like, I don't know. I just get so sad. Like I, I hate that. Yeah. Like, somebody's economic situation could prevent them from experiencing art in some way yeah i agree and that's kind of why when i first started releasing music i did it all for free because i was like i don't want money to get in the way of people enjoying Mm -hmm. my music yeah that's great yeah that's it's i mean it's so hard because we obviously have to like pay our bills but yeah so um the girl i was telling you about that i just started dating she's a programmer and yeah uh, so just by proxy of dating her, I've been talking about programming a lot. Uh-huh. And, um, one of the things I've noticed is that like in the programming scene is like anyone who makes anything, they'll pretty much just always put it up for free on GitHub. Yeah. And there's a few reasons for it. One is that they want other people to grab that thing and like build on it mm-hmm. and like improve it. And I think another one is that nobody wants to do like software updates and like maintenance. Yeah. So they're kind of like, do I want to like open monetize this thing and open up this pit of work for myself for the next few years? Right. And then also like giving this stuff out for people to make other stuff work. And I think as a whole, like the programming scene and the tech scene has built so fucking quickly Hmm. and so rampantly. Um, Yeah, that's how, how do you. So I guess like being around someone who's into code more does that do you think that's going to change the way you make music do you think it's gonna no i don't think so but it's interesting like just seeing sort of the differences between the scenes like i feel like are you like looking at gits more often now no but but i mean like just uh at least like seeing how how coders are with each other rather than like musicians and the fan base and stuff like in terms of money and stuff like that yeah and in the end it seems like the tech industry is just making way more money than the music industry now by by like a lot Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and the, it all started with like free shit and it still is primarily free shit the tech industry the tech industry kind of has this like like a company like google for example i mean they'll be they can be as evil as any other company but they they have this like enlightened understanding of capitalism in a way where like they they sort of look at uh they realize that you have all the, for example, in India, you have all these people who are, you know, stricken with poverty. And if you give them all a computer, and if you give them all uh, an education and a way to uh, expand on their ideas, 
um, you'll just have more technology will progress faster. And when technology progresses, like before we had uh, technology at the level that we had it, like before the industrial revolution, even a little bit before that, like anytime you made money, somebody else got poorer. Like you just had this like p- small pie and every single person could have their slice and there's, you know, some people would have a huge slice and that meant that other people would starve to death. And technology just makes the pie bigger. Right. Like that's the way that like most... Um, economists look at it and like google and facebook and all these tech companies they absolutely have an understanding of that where it's like we need to make that pie bigger and bigger and bigger and then we'll all be more comfortable right and yeah well that's how i feel about like uh free tutorials on youtube like Mm -hmm. if i put information out there or this is how i felt about it i still feel this way about it yeah i've always felt this way about it if i put free information out there on my youtube channel telling other people how to make music without trying to get any money or without like trying to benefit in any way myself yeah in some way like in the long run that does benefit me it's like planting seeds and then like all of these producers get better and then the entire electronic music industry grows yeah uh, because there's more people making the music so more of their friends are getting into it and then it kind of hits a snowballing effect and then you know now electronic music is like the thing yeah it's funny to me and it's funny to me how how it sort of mixes together. I've played a couple shows now where uh, actually one was funded by Google. It was in Mountain View, California. And uh, I played a show and there's a couple people who showed up early while I was still sound checking and they like wanted to talk and I said hi to them. And uh, I think there's three people and two of them had never heard the flashbulb before. They had only watched my YouTube channel. Right. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like I have people coming from this. Um yeah, and, th- and that was kind of bizarre, and it's bizarre on my channel. Like, I f- swear, every video I release, they're like, I just realized you're the flashbulb. And it's like, you didn't figure that out yet? Like, that's yeah. well, but I wonder, like, if that'll happen with this podcast. If I just, like, have play a 600 person venue and 400 of them are podcast fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll just I feel like that's kind of what happened to the comedy scene, right? Like, you have people like Joe Rogan and Tom Segura and Bert yeah. Kreischer and all of that stuff starting these podcasts a few years ago. And now they're selling out like these giant auditoriums. Oh, yeah, yeah. And most of the people going into, say, like a show like Tom Segura wearing your mom's house podcast shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Joe Rogan one's especially interesting because... That's like the biggest thing on the planet. At the it's like the biggest thing on the planet. And it's like very political. Like it's so... A lot of the guests are, yeah. It's so... Yeah, like I it, I, I used to be a huge fan because I've been into boxing and MMA, MMA my whole yeah, life. Yeah. And so I've always been a fan. And uh, and at some point, like on Jordan Peterson's 17th appearance on the fucking show, <laughs> I was just like, this is not, this is like kind of crappy. I don't really like this thing. Like this is just... Every single episode is about how liberal college kids are crazy and the world's ending. It, it and, got like that for a while. I'll yeah. still watch it if there's like, um, you know, a good amount. Like if there's a good guest, like someone who's super techie or... Yeah. Like yeah. Elon Musk, I watched that one. The Edward Snowden one recently I watched. Oh yeah, I didn't see that one. I've, I haven't watched it in a bit, but I've... Uh, I usually would watch it. Like I, I usually would tune back in if like an MMA fighter or a coach that I... But it's like less and less he's Well, now that. he has the MMA show too. Yeah, but in that... Oh yeah, is that just the one where he calls fights that he's not paid to call? <laughs> pretty yeah, pretty much. I mean, he um he has like MMA people on there, but yeah, pretty much they just watch YouTube clips of other MMA fights and go like, hey, like yeah, just talk about it. That's um, weird. what what belt are you in? Uh, you do BJJ? Yeah, purple. Oh, purple, purple. Belt, okay. But uh, and how long have you been doing it? Oh God, since ninety nine, I think. Oh wow. And Fuck. so so I should be like, if I were actually, uh, yeah, if if I actually stayed with it the way that most people do i would be many black belts in by now but uh well, what's the process to like belt up 
Um, usually about for the average person, a couple about two years probably per belt. Yeah, probably three to blue, and then mm-hmm. after that, probably two two to three years. Um, per belt, it's a lot slower than like karate or something. And like, like that. what's the process though to get up another belt? Like, what do you have to do? Do you have to go do a fight or something? Or? No, it depends on your coach. Um, my my fiance is a. Uh, She's like a white belt and she has like all her stripes and she's a, she's so close to blue belt. And she was like, like any day she was going to get, she like, you know, she had done some tournaments and stuff and at any day she was going to go to blue belt. And now she like just moved here and moved to a new school. And so in America, she's English. And so, um, I went with her the last time she went to the class and I don't really know if they're going to be like, you're a blue belt already. And if they're just going to like order one or if right. maybe she's, you know, but it depends on the but school. If you're like at. training at a school and there's like, say a lot of blue belts and you're a white belt and you're just like rolling with all the blue belts and winning a lot. Or just like, it's clear that you're yeah. like at a high skill level. They'll just upgrade you. Yeah. And I would say like 90% at least with most classes are white belts. Okay. Like, um, and then there, there's, and, and me, for example, I, I, so I started like fighting and so doing, or I, I guess like MMA and so doing, uh, rolling with the gi on just became less beneficial. And so I had to learn more wrestling and judo and things like that. And so at purple belt, I just sort of fell out of like the normal jujitsu regimen and I went into like more grappling, like wrestling and, and I guess more active grappling or more almost more aggressive grappling things that you can't do. Like I couldn't practice that three days a week. Otherwise I'd have torn ACLs. Like you can't keep doing it. Um, but now if, so I'm a purple belt, but if I put on my gi right now and went upstairs and rolled with my fiance, she would probably choke me out just because I don't remember how to defend against collar chokes and stuff like that. Right. And so it's pretty, it's pretty funky that way. Like she, she would never get me on the ground. Like she'd never be able to take me down. Cause I have the balance down from not wearing a gi, mm-hmm. but, uh, but she would probably choke me out just using her collar or uh, or my collar or her, you know, the uh, right oh, yeah, off the wrist. True. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because I guess you can use the piece of clothing as an article to choke with. Absolutely, and, and <laughs> yeah, and I've been choked in ways. Just it it drives me crazy now because I'm so not used to it anymore. I'm so used to just wearing you know, essentially a spandex suit and right, right. <laughs> grappling that way. But yeah, I've thought about doing BJJ a few times, but I'm always like, ah, do I really want to break a hip or a knee or you won't? No, no. If you, if you go into it and if you go into it with a gi, I mean, the chances like the, the most frequent thing that people break and it's not even frequent is their toes or t- okay. pinky toe or something. Cause it'll get, sometimes it gets caught in the mat or something like that. Um, but that's, that's not like a weekly occurrence. It's like yeah. every now and then it'll happen to someone. Um, I've, yeah, wearing a gi, honestly, I think in gi rolling, the worst injury I had was like a slightly bloody nose. Like, so why, um, why is the gi so much safer? Cause, uh, it, so like, I guess, if we were to, uh, if we were to just like no gi grappling is typically done. You stand up and you're both standing and then you just start and one person has to initiate a takedown and defend a takedown. That's you're just using strength and like a lot of takedowns that like I've learned, for example, I have to lift somebody up on my shoulder and then like fall backwards on them and stuff. And so there's so much strength going on. That's what hurts your knees and your neck and your back. And, um, with grappling, with with uh, with just jujitsu, with gi grappling, um, you typically start on your knees, and the way that most people, all the way up to purple belt, want to initiate rather than like taking a leg and going down, they'll just pull guard. They'll pull the pull the person on top of them and then put their legs around that person, and then 
start from there. So you have like a lot of drilling and you have a lot of rolling. And most of it is, it's easy to just stay light and not use strength, but use technique. Because if if I were to roll with like a black belt, for example, um, I could roll with a black belt who weighs half of what I weigh and probably still get submitted just because their technique would be just, you know, miles beyond where mine is. And my strength means nothing. They're using my strength against me. And so that's... I almost don't even recommend it as a form of self-defense training because I feel like the best self-defense training you could have is learning how to run and keep running. <laughs> like just, yeah, run some marathons and yeah, you'll yeah. be able to get out of trouble. But um, but I, I mean, I recommend jujitsu for almost anybody. I think it's, it's, especially for people who don't like going to the gym and just running on a treadmill for people who need goals. And um, I don't know, I would imagine you're probably closer to that demographic just because you've seen yeah. very goal-driven in life. So Yeah, I don't like um, going to the gym by myself. Like yeah. usually if I work out, it's with like a boot camp class in a park or it's mm-hmm. at a CrossFit class in a gym or something like that. But yeah, I got out of the going to the, the gym thing by myself like four, four years ago or something like that. And I've just done classes since. Yeah. Because I find that like I don't push myself hard enough if I'm by myself. And yeah. And I kind of like somebody just being like, do this, do this, like rather than me having a come up with my own workout plans and all that sort of shit and so it's kind of like so i guess like imagine that but imagine that like you have all these opponents or you have all these other people in your class and like when you start they're all they're all better than you because they've been to class and you haven't and Mm -hmm. nobody and everybody started where you started so there isn't really it's kind of a filter for douchebaggery because you know you have this like everybody's been in your shoes already yeah like nobody's i've heard that before like people who do bjj they're not like super egotistical or anything no no it's very and I mean, if you are in a school where you have that, then it's probably not a good school to be in. But right. um, yeah, and you have that. But also you have this like you you might get submitted a couple times and then you have to like go back and be like, all right, well, and you'll ask your training partner even, well, how do I prevent that? And they, you know, they'll tell you that's usually the kind of community that you're in. And then you learn how to overcome it. And then the next time the next partner, you know, your next training partner, the next person you're rolling with puts you in that submission. You know how to get out of it. You know how to reverse it. And mm. and that's kind of what life is, you know, it's kind of like right. a, a little microcosm for life is like you, you just run into challenges. You learn how to overcome them. You overcome them. You feel better about yourself. You move yeah, on to the next challenge next time. And yeah. yeah. And you can, and then the next time you get a challenge, you can either have confidence or, or for a lot of people just look at it and say, I can never do that. And then quit, you know, and that's terrible. Yeah. You have it on climbing, like bouldering. Um, no, not in a gym setting. I've like done, I've done a little bit in, mountains <laughs> right okay but um no i but it it is something that that interests me i, I see edits uh instagram i know yeah he does, he does a lot, a lot yeah yeah, he, yeah i've been climbing a few times recently too i'm terrible at it mostly because i'm so heavy mm-hmm. so it's like just doing any of that shit is fucking impossible yeah yeah try jujitsu i think you'd like it yeah i might it's, give it a shot yeah yeah and it's uh most classes will get most schools will give you like at the very least a couple free classes a lot of times they'll give you a month or two for free nice awesome because they know you'll just probably get addicted and then yeah I mean it's and they want people who want to be there too like they don't want to no no, no school wants somebody showing up who doesn't want to be there just because they you know paid a a month in advance or something Uh, yeah it makes sense and I always felt like my you know one of my last gi classes I was rolling around with like a 65 year old guy like that's there's really not anybody who's unless you're you know physically disabled like there's no reason why anybody couldn't do it like my my parents could easily do it my uh and i like my fiance she's incredible at it she's like so so determined with it and she she gets so hyped up about it and she's like 
and she knows a lot more than the average white belt. Like mentally, she's pretty much past where I am as a purple belt. Like she knows. So I don't know. Cool. There's only one one more thing I want to talk about before wrapping it because it's yeah. like we're at. Are we at Joe Rogan hours? At we're this at a hundred minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is like yeah, an hour and forty, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I try to make them like an hour to an hour and a half, yeah. roughly. Uh, I wanted to talk about um, your fear of flying. Yeah. Because I know that that's a thing. Uh-huh. Or uh, at least like I know that you drive everywhere to tour. You don't fly. Right. Which makes like um, doing like sort of back and forth between the coast stuff a little bit not logistically friendly. Yeah. So is it like, does that, I guess this kind of comes out of the BJJ stuff. Cause I know a lot of people get into exercise and like, for instance, I got into exercise specifically to attack anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Cause I was just like, you know, f- crazy spot. And I was like, fuck, I need to change my diet and exercise. Cause I was just depressed and anxious all the time. Right. And I know a lot of people get into BJJ for that and you do BJJ a lot and you don't seem like a very anxious person. So I was like curious <laughs> about the flying thing. Yeah. I, I dealt with, uh, well, I, I guess I dealt with a lot of anxiety throughout my entire life. I, I still do to some extent. Now it's a little different than it used to be. It used to be very like panic disordery, and uh, and I, I don't know. You know, I figured I actually I was prescribed things for it. And I actually sort of sorted it out on my own. I just tried to have a panic attack whenever I felt one coming on. I'd be like, all right, let's get it over with. And the moment I did that, I never <laughs> had another one. Like it was just, interesting. Okay, but you know, now my anxiety is more like just not sleeping because I'm worried about something or, you know, cause I'm like, I have an idea and I'm not sure how to, how to implement it or something, but, um, it's but like more s- circumstantial than right, yeah. existential. Yeah. <laughs> um, but starting, starting your day out with, uh, grappling with, with some, or something like that, starting your day out with like a massive physical challenge that most people are scared over to push your body and yeah, mind like in a way up a hill or something. A- adversity really like starting yeah, your yeah. day with adversity, like that and then it's really hard to be like oh i'm really anxious in line at a best buy you right, know when yeah, like yeah. You, you know you, you were in a choke an hour earlier yeah, so right. um but with flying it's strange i was never really that scared of flying and i had a couple bad experiences like what would probably be described as moderate turbulence but that's okay. enough to where like people on board are screaming and stuff and Wait, I, so so you you were in a plane that had moderate turbulence yeah. and everyone on the plane was screaming? Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Um and cuz I used to fly a lot like that to gigs multiple and, times. Um I had been in the, the last really bad one that happened was on the way from Florida to Chicago. And uh and there was like a tropical storm, not we weren't like going through a tropical storm, but there was one nearby like within a, a couple hundred miles and so the winds were a little crazy and we basically like went through those winds and you know they told us to buckle up previously and i'm used to that and and it was just it felt like we were falling 500 feet at a time you know just like and it, you could feel the plane like hitting this fake pocket or not fake but you could feel it hitting this pocket of air that felt like we were like landing on bricks or something you know it was like crazy and uh yeah i'm like everything was like strewn around the cabin and stuff but Everybody was fine. Nobody got injured. Nobody even hit their head on anything. Like, it was completely fine. And I still flew after that. I just hated it. Like, I still, I flew internationally after that. I flew, uh, you know, all over the place. But 
I just hated it more and more every time. And I think because after that was like the first time I truly realized that I'm 30,000 feet into the sky, that, that I'm just in a metal tube 30,000 feet in the it's sky. It's a scary thought, right? Like think, I've thought about this before where I'm flying and I'm like, literally the earth is so strong that yeah. it could just like knock us out of the sky yeah. with no problems right now if it wanted to. But oddly... I'm not scared of crashing or dying or any of those things. I'm just don't like being up that high and not being able to get down. Like yeah. it's the weirdest. And, and it's just like this thing that happened inside me, but I'm not against flying. Like I still like most of the reason. So what happened with this is I just got, I had an aversion to flying. And so I was like, I'll drive to this gig. And I started driving more and more. And I just discovered this like, country in between here and right, LA. Yeah. I discovered like the event, like everything from like the nature to like the little communities that you go through. And I just got addicted to it's that. It's a different experience for sure. Yeah. I've done, uh, like three driving tours Yeah, and I've done like m countless amounts at this point of flying tours. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do miss, I want to do a driving tour again in the spring. Yeah. I was about to say like, it, like if we do now that we're with the same agency, if we do end up touring, like we should absolutely be driving. Like it's yeah, so, I so think, much um, fun. Yeah, I think the touring that I'd do with you, like, so I want to start doing, like, branded sets, I guess, like, mm -hmm. which is something that I think Tipper started doing uh, first, or maybe not, he, maybe he wasn't the first one, but he started doing it, like, maybe five years ago. Yeah. He started branding his sets as up-tempo sets and down-tempo sets. Oh, nice. And that allowed people to kind of know what they were getting. Mm -hmm. um, and then quite often festivals would book him and he'd do both, you know, like Saturday night. He'd yeah, do I've up seen tempos. that. I've seen him on, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Sunday morning as the sun was rising, he'd do a down-tempo sun, yeah. sunrise set or, a, <laughs> or he'd do a down-tempo sunset set like yeah. on the Saturday afternoon and then uh, or something like that. So I want to start doing that. And I think, yeah, if we did a driving tour together, that'd be sick, but I'd want to do like probably a down-tempo sets. Yeah. I think that'd make more sense. Right, yeah. And it, that could also fit in with the seated venue idea as well. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could do show seed stuff and yeah, yeah. do a few markets that way. But, yeah. yeah, I'd be super interested in that. But it seems like at this point, my last EP was dubstep. My thing before that was pretty heavy. And my sets for the last like 12 to 18 months have just been fucking banger sets pretty yeah. much like DJing. So I think at this point, people kind of expect that now. So now I am now I need to kind of get into, I think, branding the sets differently yeah. or well, something. Well, don't give people what they expect. Never do that. <laughs> no, you never yeah. want to do that. Because like what people expect, like, I guess like just briefly before we wrap this, like, like I, Every message, almost every message I get is like, make another album like this one, like, you know, insert album. Yeah, here. and you're like, why don't you just go listen to that right, album? Right, like, it, nothing would be more disappointing than if I actually did that, than if I yeah, like, right, came through right. and did nothing new. But also when people say like, oh, I miss like this, like, why don't you make more stuff like this? You're like, literally, you're explaining to me to make something that you have. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. exists. Like, yeah, they're right. like, oh, make a song that sounds like this song. It's like, you literally already have the song. Yeah. Like, just when, like, and, and it's almost like, realistically, if they really like something, if it blew their mind, like, what they really should be asking is, can you blow my mind again? Yeah, yeah. Like, can, you, can you make something else that blows my mind as much as this did, rather than, right. can you just make this thing again? But um, circling back to the flying thing, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. And I've been talking about going to, like, I mean, in two weeks, I'll... I'll I'm going to be getting married to a British citizen and yeah. congrats. Thanks. Yeah. So, and, uh, we, yeah, she has, uh, she has a son there. And so there's like shared there, you know, like the father, son's father has my stepson's father has, um, mm -hmm. 
custody. And so there's a lot of going back and forth because it's a three-year-old on a plane. So you inevitably, there's going to be flying. <laughs> and uh, neither her or I can really uh, jet- leave the country until her citizenship is granted. But once right. that happens, I'm going to be in England a lot. What's so. the, the citizenship process, by the way? Because you're getting married and um, what does she have to do to become a citizen? Uh, she has to, the way, like we went through an attorney and the way that she has to do it is uh, file for an adjustment of status. And then take a test or something? or Yeah, they'll give us a test. The test is funny because it's basically trying to prove that we live together and that we're an actual couple. And, like, you know, that's, like, there's not much to fool there. Like, I could... So, if you live together and you're a couple and you just file for status change and you're married, it's just citizenship? They ask clever questions, sort of things like, what color are the drapes in the bedroom? Like, if you were faking a marriage, you would not know the answer yeah, to that. Yeah, but like, interesting. We know the answer to that because, you know... yeah. It's together. in the house, and we probably have a story behind the drapes, anyway. So, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But it's a uh, if you're if you're a legitimate married couple, it's not that hard. If you're faking yeah. it, it's I should hard. probably do that at some point because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on, rope. yeah, I've been doing the the visa thing, which is fun. I mean, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not fun, but it's fine. <laughs> it works. Yeah. But yeah, it's a pain in the ass every three years to pay the the government another five grand to stay here for three more years. Yeah, I. Well, probably good stuff to talk about after the podcast, just because you could say things even in this podcast that would jeopardize your citizenship as a married person. So That is true, but I don't think I would ever like illegitimately try and become a citizen here. I think I would only do it if it was under legitimate circumstances and yeah. do it through like an attorney and all that stuff as well. But yeah, I guess I'm just interested in it because yeah. of, I'm, I probably will go through the process at some yeah. point. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, that's probably a good spot to end it then, right? Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you. Yeah, doing I'm this. getting married. No more podcasts from me. No, I'm joking. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, cheers. Have a yeah. good one. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.